Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 4. Last week we saw in John's gospel Jesus interact with a religious leader named Nicodemus in the middle of the night in Jerusalem. Nicodemus was someone who would have been considered an expert in the Scriptures and a most faithful Jew. If there were any model Jews, they would be the Pharisees. But Jesus' message for Nicodemus was that you must be born again by the power of the Holy Spirit to enter the kingdom of God. Nicodemus was confused. He was a good Jew. In fact, he was a model Jew. Wasn't he in the kingdom of God already? How could a man be born again? Jesus went on to explain to him that all people are born into sin and unbelief, and it's only the Spirit who can grant new spiritual life. And when a person has been born of the Spirit, when they meet Jesus, they will be able to recognize Him as God's only Son and receive Him and believe in Him and begin obeying Him. Chapter 3 ended with this to-the-point verse, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. But can this Jewish Messiah, Jesus, really grant life to everyone? John in the third chapter has told us that God so loved the world that He sent His Son, His only Son. Is Jesus the Savior of the whole world or just the Jews of the ancient Near East? The Jews were, after all, God's chosen people. But isn't the Lord God Almighty the God of the whole earth? The last line of the last song that we sang was about the glory of the Lord filling the whole earth. Didn't God create all people to worship Him? Or was it just the Jews? Who can and can't be saved? Are there people that you think stand no chance of ever receiving the eternal life that Jesus offers? Are there people from a particular country or religion or background who God doesn't want to have anything to do with? He's already written them off. What about lifestyle? Can anyone from any kind of lifestyle follow Jesus? Can drug addicts and prostitutes and homosexuals get eternal life from Jesus? Can thieves or murderers or adulterers get eternal life from Jesus? Was God really demonstrating His love to the whole world when He sent His Son into the world? That's the question that our passage begins to answer today. Follow along with me as I read in John chapter 4. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 42. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard 
that Jesus was making and discipling and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. And so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Just then His disciples came back. They marveled that He was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And so the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. 
Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. The main message of this passage for us is that Jesus offers all people eternal life, and the true worship of God. Jesus offers all people eternal life and the true worship of God. We'll start with the first 18 verses in this chapter, and they describe to us eternal life that satisfies. Eternal life that satisfies In chapter 3, Jesus was in the Judean countryside near Jerusalem, but by the beginning of chapter 4, it's become known among the Pharisees that Jesus was gaining an even greater following than John the Baptist. And as we progress through John's gospel, we'll see that Jesus' ministry is going to create increasing conflict with the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And Jesus is aware of this. He's in complete control. He knows all things. He's making decisions about what to do when at the direction of His Father in heaven. And so, even at this early stage in His ministry, He decides to move His ministry activities back up north to the region of Galilee, closer to His home of Nazareth, and far enough away from Jerusalem to draw less attention from those authorities. But in order to get to Galilee, he has to pass through the region of Samaria, and that's where everything takes place in our passage this afternoon. But it's not just any place in Samaria. There's a personal encounter that Jesus has that takes place beside a very famous well that the patriarch Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob, you'll remember, is the grandson of Abraham can read all about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph in the book of Genesis. Jacob is the one whom God renamed Israel, and he had lots of sons, and those sons became all the tribes of Israel. The nation was named after Jacob. Now, in our passage, as the conversation begins, it's about noon. It's the hottest time of day. 
Jesus had sent His disciples into the nearby town to get food, and then He sat down next to the well to rest. One thing that stands out in the text, even before Jesus begins this conversation with a lone Samaritan woman, is there in verse 6. It says, so Jesus, wearied as He was from the journey. John has impressed upon us that at the beginning of his gospel, that Jesus is the eternal creator, that all things were made through him and for him, and he is, in fact, God. He is Yahweh. But he is also fully human. The Word became flesh, John told us in those first 18 verses. Jesus is one person with two complete and perfect natures, one divine and one human. And as we work our way through John's gospel and really all four of the gospels, we see times when Jesus' divinity shines forth brightly and other times when His humanity shines forth brightly. He is fully God and fully man. He is God in human form. He needs nothing, but He gets thirsty. He upholds the universe, but He gets weary. He knows all things, but He needs sleep. And because He's fully God and fully human, we know that He can sympathize with our human weaknesses. We know what it's like to be weary. I bet a lot of you came in this afternoon weary weary from your week, maybe weary from burdens you're carrying, relationship challenges, family issues. J.C. Ryle, the famous bishop from Liverpool, England, says, when we cry to Him in our hour of bodily pain and weakness, He knows well what we mean. When our prayers and praises are feeble through bodily weariness, He can understand our condition. The poor The sick and the suffering have in heaven one who is not only an almighty Savior, but a most sympathetic friend. This is our Jesus, brothers and sisters. This is good news for us. Jesus knows our weaknesses. Know that when you approach the throne of grace, Christ has experienced your human weaknesses. He knows what you're going through. He knows what it feels like. Now, as Jesus sat there by the well, weary from His journey, a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus asks her for a drink. Immediately, she's surprised, and she asks, how is it that you, a Jew, can ask me, a woman from Samaria, for a drink? You see, the Samaritans and the Jews were terribly hostile with one another. And this had gone on for centuries, literally centuries. Samaria was one name for the northernmost part of Israel that had long ago split off from the southern part of Israel, which was called Judah commonly. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And this division in the kingdom between the north and the south had happened as a result of the sin of King Solomon. He had ruled over a 
united kingdom. But because of his sin, God said, I will divide the kingdom. And when the kingdom was divided and Israel was split apart, Samaria was split, split apart from Judah, rather than allow their people in the north to travel down to Jerusalem to the temple, the only place for worship, as God had commanded, the first king in the north decided, I don't want that to happen. I don't want them going down to the south and perhaps realigning their allegiance with the southern king so I'll create alternate worship sites in the north. And so he did. And he set up golden calves at these worship sites. He also created his own priesthood to serve at those worship sites. All of this was a gross corruption of the true worship that God had originally commanded the Israelites when he brought them out of slavery from Egypt. Now, later in history... When God brought judgment on Samaria by sending the nation of Assyria to conquer them, the people there in the north, those Jews became intermixed with other nationalities and because of that, other religions further corrupted the religion in the north. And Jesus' disciples would have viewed this Samaritan woman as a pagan Gentile, someone whom God would disapprove of and ultimately be judged on the day of judgment. She had no place in God's kingdom. But it was even worse, of course, because she was a she. She was a woman. Some Jewish teachers looked down on women. They viewed them as not worthy of being taught God's scriptures even, or for sometimes not even being worth having a conversation with. All of this, of course, in contradiction to God's word and what He says about men and women being made in His image. This woman, she's the opposite of Nicodemus from chapter 3. He was the religious elite. She was the most despised. Yet rather than ignore her, rather than shun her, Jesus took the initiative and asked her for a drink. He treated her entirely differently than a Jew normally would treat a Samaritan. And their conversation then began to unfold, and it centered on this topic of water, of course. Jesus was thirsty. When the Samaritan woman asked Jesus why he would ask her for a drink, Jesus immediately begins revealing to her that he is someone special, someone special even for her, even though she's never met him. Look at verse 10. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and He would have given you living water. Just like with Nicodemus, Jesus is using earthly ideas to communicate heavenly truths. Earthly ideas to speak about spiritual things. Jesus is announcing to her that He is the one who offers the gift of God. 
And that rather than busy herself drawing water from Jacob's well, she should be asking him for living water because he can deliver. Now, at first, of course, she doesn't understand. She asks if Jesus thinks he's greater than the patriarch Jacob who dug the well. Jacob was very, very important in the culture and religion of the north. Jesus is greater, of course, and He has more to tell her about this living water that He offers. He's not done talking to her. He's not put off by her confusion. Look at verses 13 and 14. He continues, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus is the one who has promised to baptize with the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit is the one we've learned in John chapter 3 who gives the new birth necessary to see and believe in Christ. Jesus had already spoken about being born of the water and the Spirit, if you'll remember from John chapter 3. And we turned that week back to some of the chapters in Ezekiel, where God had promised to sprinkle the Israelites with clean water to cleanse them from their sins and put a new spirit in them. The theme of water, living water even, fresh water that cleanses, continues through the book of Ezekiel. And later in chapter 47 of Ezekiel, Ezekiel has a vision of a brand new temple that will one day be built. And in this vision, the heavenly creature takes him to the temple. And as he's looking at the temple, water begins to gush out from underneath the door of the temple. And that water becomes at first ankle deep and then knee deep and then waist deep. This is fresh water running from the temple, and it rushes down towards the river Jordan. It becomes a raging river, in fact, of fresh, clean water, and it runs all the way down to the sea, and when it comes to the sea, it turns the salt water into fresh water. That's its power, and everything around this incredible river of living water springs to life all the animals, all the plants. This is the picture that Ezekiel was given of, we could say, living water. When she asks for this living water, Jesus reveals to her one of the thirsts of her heart that's not been satisfied in this world. Jesus says, go call your husband and come here. Of course, she has no husband. He knows that. And then Jesus reveals to her only something that he could know if he was the true God, the one who knows all things, the one who knows everything about you and I. In fact, she's had five husbands, and the man that she's living with now is not her husband. Perhaps her husbands have died. Perhaps some of them were separations by divorce. Whatever the case, this woman is on her sixth relationship with a man in her life. These series of relationships reveal the deep thirst in her heart 
for relationship, a thirst that she can't quite seem to quench. And now here at Jacob's well, she's met the only man who can offer something which truly quenches the thirsts of her heart. Jesus, who offers the living water of eternal life. Think about it for just a moment. Each one of us has sins that not everyone knows about. We have thirsts that we have tried to quench in all the wrong ways. Jesus knows the ways that you've sought to quench the deepest thirsts of your heart. He knows how you've run to other things or other people rather than to Himself. He knew all of that before you were a Christian. All that sin and all that disobedience was committed against His holy and loving character. You were in rebellion against your gracious and kind Creator, and yet He came to you. He sent people into your life with the good news that He offers living water that satisfies like nothing else on earth. Just as she didn't go looking for Jesus, you didn't go looking for Him either. He came looking for you. J.C. Ryle again says all day long, He stretches out His hands to the disobedient and rebellious. He has thoughts of pity and compassion towards the vilest of sinners, even when they have no thoughts of Him. All our sin is a quest to quench a thirst of the heart. But sin never satisfies, does it? Rather than quench a thirst, it merely creates more thirst. In fact, it enslaves. It doesn't water us. It withers us. But the eternal life that Jesus offers truly satisfies. He knows what we need. The one who created us knows and can give true life, eternal life. Later in John, Jesus will say, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. There's nothing that will exclude you from receiving the eternal life that Jesus offers except your own refusal to come to Him, your own admission that you have thirsts that you've tried to quench on your own, and that He is the only one who offers the living water of eternal life. Jesus is the Christ who graciously offers eternal life to whoever believes in Him, even a Samaritan woman. The eternal life that He offers is what truly satisfies the human heart. Run to Jesus. Ask for that living water. Ask for more of it. But Jesus is also the only one who enables the true worship of God. The second point this afternoon is worship that's true. Worship that's true, and we see that in verses 19 through 26, as the conversation with the Samaritan woman continues. She, of course, is immediately struck with Jesus' intimate and miraculous knowledge of her life. She recognizes that He's a prophet. And that understanding of Him shifts her attention to the religious points of disagreement between the Samaritans and the Jews. (laughs) 
Some people have trouble having a conversation with someone else from another religion without bringing up the differences. Not only had the kings of the north set up alternate worship sites in the north against God's command to worship at the one place in Jerusalem, but they had built a duplicate temple on a mountain in the north around 400 A.D., excuse me, B.C. It had been destroyed by the nations that attacked them, but they still worshiped on that mountain, Mount Gerizim, according to their corrupted practices. Not only that, but the Samaritans only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament. They rejected the rest of the Jewish Scriptures. When this Samaritan woman points out their differences over where to worship, whether in the north or in Jerusalem as the Jews do, Jesus announces to her that a new time has arrived in history and that He has the authority to decide it. Look back at verses 21 through 24. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Jesus is saying something radical. No longer will worship of God the Father happen on the mountain in the north, as the Samaritans say, or on the mountain in the south in Jerusalem at the temple like the Jews say. True revelation comes from the Jews and their scriptures. Instead of on a mountain in a temple... The true worshipers of God will now begin worshiping in spirit and in truth. In the Holy Spirit, which gives the new birth and true spiritual life, and in the truth, which is embodied in the only Son of God, Jesus Christ, spirit and truth. True worshipers worship in the power of the Holy Spirit according to the truth as it's revealed in Jesus Christ Himself. Later in the Gospel of John, Jesus will say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the truth. Now that the only Son of God has come into the world, true worshipers of God don't worship in a specific place, but through a specific person, the person of Jesus. Jesus has already announced in chapter 2 that He would be the replacement of the temple Himself. Destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days, he said. He's talking about his body. And now that Christ has come and he is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit, anyone who believes in him begins to worship the Father in spirit and in truth, in Christ. These are the worshipers that the Father is seeking, he says. We must worship God as he has commanded. We don't get to decide how to worship Him. We have to worship God in the way that He's prescribed, the way that He's dictated to us in His Word. We're not in a position to determine that ourselves. If you want to please God, if you want to be accepted by God, 
He has sent His Son, Jesus Christ, into the world and the Holy Spirit. No other worship honors the Father other than worshiping in the Spirit and in the truth of Jesus Christ. No other worship exalts the Son. No true worship can take place apart from in the Spirit. Jesus is not just one other way to worship God. He is the only way to worship God. If you're not a Christian, maybe this is shocking to you. Perhaps this is unsettling to you that the Christian Scriptures claim that Jesus is the only way and worshiping in the Spirit is the only way to have your worship accepted by God. But that's exactly what it's saying. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. Oh, friend, would you turn to Christ? Would you stop fooling yourself that you can determine how to worship God on your own terms, in your own way, in your own time, in your own place? No. God has determined that. You are a creature. He is the Creator. We take our directions from God in how to worship Him in ways that please Him. Turn to Jesus. Trust in this Messiah. He is the Savior of the whole world. If you're a Christian, we said it several weeks ago when we studied John 2 together, but it bears repeating, there is no one place that's required by God to worship Him in spirit and in truth. Church buildings aren't holy places. You don't have to make a pilgrimage to a special holy site. Instead, God's people are holy people because they're filled with the Holy Spirit and they're trusting in Jesus Christ, the Holy Son of God. We worship God, in fact, in all that we do. We worship God seven days a week with all that we think and say and do. We worship God 52 weeks out of the year. What glorious grace that the Father has shown to us by removing this requirement of traveling to a temple and making blood sacrifices. He's given us Christ and the Spirit. And we can worship Him everywhere and all the time. Instead, we are the temple because we're united to Christ by faith and filled with the Spirit. Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 through 17 says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. When Jesus announced this radical new way of worshiping God, this Samaritan woman proclaimed that when the Messiah comes, He will explain everything. Verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. There are few places where Jesus identifies Himself so clearly as the Messiah sent from God as in the presence of this Samaritan woman. 
He is the Messiah, and He's explained that eternal life comes from Him as a gift to those who ask. And He has explained how true worshipers worship the Father in this new age of the Messiah. As in the Scripture reading earlier from Ezekiel that Fanny read for us, God promised many places in the Old Testament that one day there would be a Savior, a Messiah sent into the world, and that He would unite the north and the southern kingdom, Jew and Samaritan would come together under the Messiah's reign, and they would worship God together under one shepherd. It said in that passage that Fanny read to us, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone, and I will gather them from all around and bring them to their own land, and I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them all. And they shall be no longer two nations and no longer divided into two kingdoms. Here in John 4, God is beginning to bring this about. And that's a theme that's running all throughout this passage. Jesus is the Christ, and whoever believes in Him has eternal life. That's the third point this afternoon. A Savior for all people. A Savior for all people. And we see that most clearly in verses 27 through 42. It comes into full bloom, we can say. The narrative changes here as the disciples return from the village and the woman leaves to begin telling her fellow Samaritans about this Christ. Come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out from the town and were coming to him. It is normal, brothers and sisters, for all Christians to share their faith from the very beginning of trusting in Christ. It is normal for us to go and find people to tell them what has happened in our lives, that we have put our trust and faith in the Messiah. I think I was last week that I said from the pulpit, trusting in Christ and being a Christian is a very personal thing, but it is never a private thing. If it's a private thing, then we risk the fact that we're actually only ashamed of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, be zealous in sharing your faith from the very beginning of sharing your faith. Those of you who are brand new Christians, you should begin telling people about your faith. Tell your colleagues, tell your family members, pray that God would open up opportunities And those of us who have walked with Christ for a long time, let's watch them and learn. Let's watch them and be inspired and encouraged to do the same. Now in this passage, it's time for the disciples to learn that this Messiah is a Savior for all people, indeed the whole world. Whereas the woman and Jesus had a conversation about living water, the disciples and Jesus have a conversation that starts out about food. They want Him to eat. But he insists that he has food that they don't know about. Look at verse 34 through 38 again. He says to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. 
He goes on to say that the fields are white for harvest, that the sower and the reaper are rejoicing together, that the reaper is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. Jesus has told us that the Father is seeking true worshipers, and now Jesus confirms that His food or what sustains Him is to do the will of Him who sent Him and to accomplish His work. Jesus is seeking true worshipers because the Father is seeking true worshipers. Jesus is reaping a harvest of souls as these Samaritans come to see if He is indeed the Christ. Jesus' harvest is a harvest of people receiving the gift of God, eternal life. Now, we know that John the Baptist has been sowing. He's been proclaiming that the Messiah, the Christ, is coming after him in these parts of Israel, and now Jesus is reaping. And Jesus' disciples, as they follow and learn from Jesus, are being drawn into this work of spiritual sowing and reaping. They will learn how to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. They will learn to point people to Christ. They will be sent out two by two into the highways and the byways to proclaim the coming of the kingdom of God. We too have been called to sow and to reap, to seek true worshipers, true worshipers from whoever would put their trust and faith in Christ. Is advancing God's kingdom part of what is your work in this world? Do you view it as something that literally sustains you in a sense because it's that important to you? Oh, brothers and sisters, we have an incredible place that God has brought us to here in Dubai, the crossroads of so many different nations, to go out and share the good news of Jesus Christ. We can be sowers and reapers here in this most strategic of cities. It's not by accident that God has you in Dubai. Oh, that we would do His work here. Jesus says in verses 39 through 42, or the passage says, that a great spiritual harvest is beginning in Samaria on that day. These Samaritan villagers came, they asked Jesus to stay with them, and so He did two full days. Can you imagine it for just a moment, the hostility between Jews and Samaritans and Jesus says, let's stay in Samaria and hang out in these Samaritans' homes for two days and have a conference about the kingdom of God and eternal life? Oh, it turned their lives upside down, I'm sure. These Samaritan villagers came and they asked Jesus to stay and look at what happened, 41 and 42. And many more believed because of His word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Don't lose sight of the miracle that's happening in this passage. 
Jesus is demonstrating that He is the Savior of the whole world. Samaritans, as well as Jews, can come into the kingdom when they repent and trust in this Messiah. Whoever believes in Him can have this living water that wells up into a stream that never will stop flowing out of a person's heart. Jesus is the Savior of the world. He is a Savior able to save anyone, a Savior able to save anyone from any nationality, from any ethnic background, from any religious background. He is a Savior who can save out of any kind of sin as well. Sins of prostitution and adultery, sins of lying, sins of cheating. Jesus is a Messiah for everyone, all people. No one is barred from coming to this Jesus. Oh, brothers and sisters, do you see the beauty of what is happening in this passage? Jesus is demonstrating that He is the Savior of the world. Let's reassert our trust and faith in Him and proclaim Him in this most strategic of places in the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise You and thank You for sending Your only Son into the world. We praise You and thank You that anyone who repents of their sins and trusts in Him can have eternal life and can be enabled to be a true worshiper of You, our Father in heaven. Oh Lord, we praise You for Him. We pray that He would be the Savior that we proclaim each and every day of our lives. Help us do this work, Lord, and be sustained by it. In Christ's name, amen. Please stand with me and let's sing our final song together.